Joshua 10. In my household, there's a phrase that often comes up. Sometimes it's the result of me having a bad week of work or when I come home trying to express to Jenna that I think this is the time I've really ruined the church. It does happen, believe it or not. Sometimes it comes up as we're wrestling with a difficult decision we have to make in life or as we're struggling through how to restore a broken relationship or as we come to the conclusion that finally this time we've really messed up our kids, which also we worry about, believe it or not. And my wife, faithful as she is, will turn and look at me and say, Brad, you're just not that powerful. And you'd think that's a derogatory remark, but I actually really appreciate her willingness to say that pretty clear that what she's trying to remind me of is that I am not powerful enough to predict or control the future. I don't know what's coming, and I'm not in control of it. I'm not powerful enough to fix everyone or everything, much as I might think otherwise sometimes. I'm not powerful enough to mess up our kids. I am not powerful enough to destroy the church. The point is pretty clear. She's reminding me that my failures can't frustrate God's purposes. Our failures cannot frustrate God's purposes. And I expect I'm probably not the only one that needs to be reminded of that from time to time. Maybe you are sitting here this morning and you're feeling yourself resonating with that. Often we are tempted to think that times because of our failures in the past, because of our shortcomings today, we have somehow gotten in the way of God's plans. And we can't be used by him to accomplish his purposes in our lives or in this world. Maybe it's an upbringing or what your life looked like before you came to know Christ. And you look back on those days and you go, something was flawed. I don't know enough. I don't have enough experience. God maybe can't use me today because of what's in my past. Maybe it's a bad choice or direction in life when you deviated from God's will, when you didn't prayerfully consider something before you moved and you found yourself in a stitchy or a sticky situation. Maybe it's a previous season of sin or rebellion against God. Or maybe it's a lack of knowledge, a lack of experience, or a current weakness that you find yourself struggling with. Maybe God can't use me. Maybe God doesn't have something for me today because of what I did in the past. And we're all tempted to think that we've messed up too much, we've fallen short somehow, and as a result, we quit seeking what God would have for us to do today. I don't know about you, but I expect there's many, in addition to me, sitting here that resonate with that. And I would encourage you that if that is true of you today, if you find yourself questioning whether or not some mistake you've made in the past defines your future and limits God's purposes for your life, Joshua 10 should be an encouragement to you. As Joshua 10 is another pretty long section, we're going to read through it as we walk through the text rather than up front in our time together this morning. But as we dive into this, I'd ask you to pray with me and seek God's help in studying this. Father, as we've already sung here this morning, you are holy, 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 holy. You are so good and you are so gracious. And Lord, we come before you here this morning, not because we deserve to be here, not because we deserve the graciousness of the gift of your Son, not because we deserve the graciousness of the gift of the Spirit in our lives, not because we deserve to be called together as a church to worship you, but we love you because you loved us first. And we're thankful and joyful for that reality. 
pray that as we study this text in Joshua chapter 10, that you would guide and direct our conversation, Lord, that you would use it, that you would speak through me, that you would encourage and challenge our hearts. Help us to go away more awed by who you are and more humbled by what you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen. Now, it's worth taking a moment to mention where we're at in the book again, because as always, we have to backtrack a little bit in order to move forward as we walk through the book of Joshua. Remember in Joshua, what has happened so far is Joshua has been appointed as this new leader of Israel as they head into the promised land. And they've moved over the Jordan River, they've moved into the promised land, and they've established a base of operations at Gilgal. You see it up there on the page, it's number two there, as you see that line going in. And though the conquest got off to a bit of a rocky start as they struggled at AI, the conquest is now fully underway as they're continuing their central campaign, moving straight into the middle of the promised land. But then last week in chapter 9, that plan was threatened by an ill-advised treaty with the city of Gibeon, chiefly because Israel failed to consult the Lord and acted simply out of human wisdom. I appreciate George's willingness to expound that and explain that the Gibeonites received the incredible blessing of being folded into the people of Israel in many ways and participate, and yet it still stands that Israel failed when they failed to seek God's counsel and God's wisdom there. And so we find ourselves in chapter 10, once again, asking the question in Joshua, has Israel's failure threatened God's purposes for them in the land? Have they done something so heinous that God can no longer use them to accomplish his purposes here? The start of the chapter is undeniably ominous as it begins with the practical consequences of Israel's failure. Look at this in verses 1 through 5. We see real consequences honestly faced. Here, Israel ends up being drawn into a conflict because of their inappropriate relationship with the Gibeonites. Look at verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it, devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them... Now hold on one second before we go into verse 2. I want us to note real briefly here that there are two reasons that this battle is going to take place, that Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, starts this fight. The first is Israel's faithfulness. They had conquered Ai, they had conquered Jericho, and done exactly what God had commanded them to do. But more so, he notes Israel's failure here, how they had made peace with Gibeon. We remember that from last week, right? How the Gibeonites came to the Israelites, even though they were only about 20 miles away from them, and they wore shoddy clothes, and they had worn out shoes, and they had moldy bread, and they had wineskins that were torn, and they said, we've come from a long ways away, can we make a covenant with you? And rather than seeking the Lord's guidance, the Israelites said, sure, we've read Deuteronomy 20, we can do that. And they make a covenant with God, or with the people of Gibeon. And then they find out that the Gibeonites are just up the road, that they've been duped, that they've had one pulled over on them. And though they lament and regret the fact that they did this, they still have this covenant, this alliance with the Gibeonites. And so they have this struggle, they have this situation, and we go, what is going to happen? Well, what initially happens in verse 2 is that Adonai Zedek gets frightened. Look at verse 2. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. Not surprisingly, 
Adonai Zedek, down here in Jerusalem, looks up to Gibeon and says, they've sided, they've surrendered to the enemy. What does that mean for the rest of us? What's going to happen to the rest of us? And so what does he do? He decides to take the initiative. He decides to take the offense, right? The best defense is a good offense. And he forms a coalition to attack the Israelites and the Gibeonites. That coalition, we learn, is made up of five kings. Look at verse 3 and 4. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. He forms this coalition of armies. And if we can get the map up here, you want to flip to the next one here real quickly. What you'll notice is right there, okay, so we've got the Battle of Jericho, that first kind of star-looking thing, then the Battle of Ai, and then down to the southwest is that Battle of Gibeon. That's where Gibeon is. And all five of these cities are to the southwest of Gibeon. They're all downhill from Gibeon, and they all get together and they say, we can't defeat them on our own, but if we all get together and attack at the same time, maybe we can take out Gibeon. And so their plan is to attack Gibeon, and it seems that they have a twofold goal here. First, their goal is to attack Gibeon to teach Gibeon a lesson. How dare you deviate from the Canaanites? How dare you side with the Israelites? So we're going to come up here and we're going to take you out before you get the chance to take us out. But they also seem to be attempting to lure Israel into a conflict here. They're like, you've made this alliance with the Israelites. If we attack you, they'll be drawn into this conflict. And so they take the initiative, and that's precisely what they do. Look at verse 5. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war again against it. Now, is that not an ominous start to this story? Israel, having made this inappropriate pact with the Gibeonites, is now in a situation. They now, their allies are at war. They're being attacked, and they have taken the initiative. What is Israel going to do? But before we get to that, I just want to note something here that I think is really significant. Because it's worth pausing at this setting, this introduction to the story, to note that the alliance between Gibeon and Israel that occurred in chapter 9, has consequences for both parties. Did you pick up on that? Due to Israel's failure and this alliance with the Gibeonites, they're now drawn into an unplanned battle. At every other point in Joshua, Israel is on the offensive. They are taking ground. They are choosing when to engage and where to engage. And at this moment now, they have to respond to the enemy. But in addition to that, Gibeon's surrender... Siding with the Israelites results in them being rejected by the rest of the Canaanites. They have flipped sides, and now they are the enemy. This may seem like it goes without saying, but I think the principle that's worth noting here is that human actions have consequences. There are consequences to the side we take. There are consequences to the actions we take. And sometimes those actions can be the right thing to do, and sometimes they're the wrong thing to do. In both cases here, they result in war. Both the Israelites and the Gibeonites are now on the alternative side. I think this is worth noting. The Gibeonites siding with God results in them being attacked. That's a true fact, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. 
When you pick a side and you pick to be on God's side, you make yourself an enemy to the world, do you not? And yet it's shocking to us <laughs> that the fact that those who side with God and his people are hated by the world sometimes, that shouldn't shock us. We should expect that reality. In fact, in John chapter 15, Christ said this is exactly what would happen. Turn to the right in your Bibles to John chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. And in John chapter 15, Jesus articulates these words, which I think are really fascinating. John 15, verses 18 through 21. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Throughout history, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, people choosing to be on the side of God have left themselves in a position to be attacked by the world. When we reject the world, we should expect animosity from the world. And I realize that's a bit of a hard pill to swallow because you're like, in some ways, Gibeon chose the right side in this conflict, and yet they find themselves being attacked. And many of us probably resonate with that. Maybe you're a new believer. You've just placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and now all of a sudden you find your friends and your family who have you known for a long time aren't treating you quite the same way they used to. They're not a big fan of your opinions and your new biblical knowledge and your desire to please God. Maybe you're a student in class, and you find that when you express your opinions that come from the Word of God, neither your classmates nor your professors are particularly excited about that new realization. Maybe you're an employee, and as you stand on biblical truth and morals, you find that your boss, your coworkers, and even your clients don't want to do business with you anymore. When we reject the world, we should expect animosity. When Gibeon decides to side with the Israelites, the rest of the nation of Canaan begins to view them as an enemy. But even more than that reality, I think what's really stressed here in this introduction is Israel's failure from chapter 9. It is Israel's failure to seek God's will that results in the natural consequence of this battle taking place. And odds are, I expect that many of you can probably resonate with that as well. Today, we all are living with the natural consequences of the choices we have made earlier in life, are we not? Every one of us has something in our past that we look to and we say, that was a mess up. That was a failure. That was something I didn't do right. Maybe it was a bad business decision or a relationship that we found ourselves in and then we can't get out of or we don't know what to do about. Maybe it's a sin that has just crept into your life and has grown and grown until it blew up in your face. Maybe like Israel, it's simply a failure to pray before you make major decisions and they don't turn out quite the way you'd like them to. Could be any number of other things. What we must recognize is we all have to live with the consequences of our choices. In theological terms, this is known as agency. That the choices we make have significant, real implications. That when we choose not to follow God, when we choose to choose sin, when we choose even to follow God and reject the world, that results in consequences in our lives. 
you probably find yourself asking if God is capable of redeeming these situations, if he's capable of recovering any value from your previous failures. I know I find my own self asking, what will God do? What does he expect of me now? Am I now just going to be put on the bench because I'm out of the game? That's precisely what the next section addresses. As we move into verse 6, we find ourselves asking, will Israel keep their word to the Gibeonites or will they just bail? And more importantly, will God continue to be faithful to them if they do? In verses 6 through 15, we see divine aid prayerfully sought. And the first question of what is Israel going to do is answered almost immediately. Look at verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Here we see Israel's faithfulness to their word. Israel and Joshua respond immediately to this new alliance that they've made with Gibeon. Despite the inconvenience, despite the threat that it poses to Israel, they are true to their word. Now why? Why is it so critical that they not just say, well, I mean, they're Canaanites anyway, why don't we just bail on them? Because God's reputation is on the line here. Look back at chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. When they made this original treaty, the people were rebelling and grumbling against them, and the leaders say something that's really, really insightful. Look at verse 19 in chapter 9. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. They choose to be faithful to this covenant they have made, even though it was a poor judgment choice on their behalf, because God's reputation is on the line. And the significance of this is highlighted, because 400 years later, if you're familiar with the book of 2 Samuel, we learn, or 1 Samuel, excuse me, we learn that King Saul, the first king of Israel, goes out and attacks the Gibeonites and breaks this covenant, and as a result, God brings judgment on Saul. 400 years after this covenant was made, God judges his own king for breaking his word to the Gibeonites. When God's reputation is on the line, it's really, really critical. That's why God's people must keep their word. That's why we let our yes be yes and our no be no. Why? Because when people see how we handle the truth, they'll assume that's how God handles the truth. And if God is flippant with his promises and doesn't handle the truth correctly and doesn't keep his word, people will assume that, or if we do that, people will assume that God does that as well. Excuse me. And so God's people must be people who keep their word, must be people who commit because God's name is on the line. But you may be asking yourself, this covenant wasn't even God's idea. This was a failure on the part of the Israelites, so will God simply leave them to fend for themselves as they go in? They say, you made the mess, you clean it up. Well, thankfully, the following section answers that question with a resounding no. So as the people were faithful to their word, God is also faithful to Israel in verses 8 through 14. And I love this section. This is the heart of the battle with these, or this army that they're fighting against. And we see in this Four specific ways that God intervenes for the sake of his people. Look at this. First, verse 8. God promises victory. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, or do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. And I love this reminder. He says, Don't be afraid, because I am going before you. Here we see Israel once again operating according to God's word. Where they failed to seek God's word and God's will in chapter 9, now they're operating and doing exactly what God is calling them to do, and so God promises them victory. Then in verse 9 and 10, God causes a panic in the opposing army. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Did you notice that? God causes this panic. This army who was so confident they were going to defeat the Gibeonites is all of a sudden thrown into a panic because of God's intervention. And then maybe most insulting, God sends hail on them. Look at verse 11. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, if that doesn't stress the point, I don't know what will. Israel goes out to battle. God throws their enemies into disarray. And just to add injury to insult, God starts throwing down hailstones on them. So this enemy is already running away. They're already fleeing, and God just taking them out. Right? And the Israelites aren't getting hit. Imagine a hailstorm where only the enemy is getting hit. It's like you're out playing a football game or something, right? And all of a sudden it starts to hail, and it's like only the opposing team is getting hit with the hailstones. Pretty easy to win at that moment, right? God sends hail. And, and this, I just love this, right? There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Does God's role seem preeminent here to anybody else? And then finally, and most impressively, in verses 12 through 14, God stops the sun. Look at this. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? Now, the book of Jashar is an extra-biblical account of the acts of God, okay? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. This is staggering. Remember when they were about to enter the Jordan River and God was about to stop the Jordan River? He says, consecrate yourself or I'm about to do wonders among you. This is amazing. God stops the sun. And God is doing this in response to Joshua's prayer. That should humble us. In many ways, this undoes the failure of Joshua chapter 9. In 9, they failed to pray, and as a result, they end up in this awkward alliance. In 10, they do pray, and the sun stops in the sky. If this doesn't stress the significance and power of prayer to you, I don't know what will. It's amazing that in our daily lives, more often than not, we have a hard time finding time to pray. But here, because of Joshua's prayer, God gives them more time. I find that really ironic. That the author of time says, I'm just going to push pause on creation for a moment so that you can get the job done. And we don't have time to pray. I don't have time to pray. And related to this story, I just, want to, I just want to note a few things here real briefly. Because a lot has been made of this account in Scripture by 
by liberal theologians and by atheists, by any number of people who look at this and say, see, the Bible is just full of myths. It's just full of untruths. It's just full of things that don't make any sense. Who could possibly place their faith and trust in that sort of old dusty book when you see stories like this in it? I just want to make a few things mentioned here. The first is this telling is a true story of history, not a myth. We believe that the Word of God is inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative, and everything we read in it is true. It's not some myth, it's not some made-up fable to encourage us. This actually happened. We must believe that. Secondarily, we have to recognize that this is miraculous, which doesn't make us unscientific. It's not that either the Bible or Christians are arguing that this sort of thing happens all the time. I mean, look back at verse 13. The sun stopped in the midst of the heavens and did not hurry to set for a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. We're not arguing this is a normal thing. We're not arguing that people normally walk on water. We're not arguing that suns normally stop in the sky or the Jordan River normally stops flowing. We're saying this is a miraculous intervention of the creator of the universe. And if God, who sustains the created universe by the power of his will and his word, holds everything in motion, then he can suspend some of those laws for a moment. Can he not? So it's not unscientific to say that the one who is in charge of keeping it all spinning can make it stop for a moment. The last thing I want to note about this is it is a, this is a big word, so bear with me, phenomenological language. Okay? It's language meant from the perspective of the Israelites to describe what's taking place. They're not ignorant of the fact that the earth goes around the sun. It's not like God is like, really? The earth goes around the sun? They didn't find that out until 1500 or whatever? No, God knows. This is told from the perspective of the Israelites. The sun appeared to stop in the sky. Some theologians, liberal theologians, will take this and will say, see, this doesn't make any sense, right? The Israelites thought that the sun or the earth revolved around the sun. No, that's not what God is saying here. It would be similar to us having a conversation here after the service, and I were to walk up to you and I would say, wasn't that a beautiful sunrise this morning? You'd be like, well, hold on, Brad. You know that the sun didn't actually rise. The earth is spinning. It'd be ridiculous, right? And that's what people do with the text. They look at it and they say, as if somehow God doesn't know when he set the planets in orbit that the earth revolves around the sun and the earth spins to make days. It's phenomenal logical language. It articulates the perspective of the Israelites the way it looked. So regarding this story, we must acknowledge the historical accuracy of what took place. God did something miraculous. Though we can be a bit humble about exactly how God worked it out. If you read people on this text, some will speculate that God stopped the world spinning and just suspended the other laws of the universe. Some people will argue that he caused the world to tilt a little bit more so the day was longer. Others will say it was a localized phenomenon. It doesn't really matter. The point is it took place. It actually happened. We don't need to know how it took place. We believe that God did it. But all of this is somewhat secondary because the real key of this story, the real key that the author is trying to stress here is found at the end of verse 14. Did you see it? For the Lord fought for Israel. We come into this test asking the question, will Israel be faithful to their word? And they are. And we say, will God then be faithful to Israel? God is faithful to Israel, despite their previous failure. In some ironic twist, Israel draws God into the conflict by making this inappropriate alliance, and yet God is still faithful to them. 
principle that I think we can take away from this that is encouraging to me is that human failure can't thwart God's promises. You may need to hear this. I'm not denying the fact that our choices have consequences, and we have to live with that. But human failure, even human rebellion on the part of these kings, cannot thwart God's promises. You can't undo God's promises by messing it up so badly. It's kind of like trying to paddle upstream is the way it works. If you've ever been out in a canoe or a kayak or whatever your cup of tea is, the river is flowing downstream, right? And it's really easy to go along with the river, and it's really hard when we start paddling upstream. <laughs> but when we choose to do our own thing, we choose to make, un, you know, like the Israelites here, make a covenant that doesn't make any sense without praying to God and asking for his help first. It's like paddling upstream. You fight against God's will, but you can't undo it. Proverbs says that man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Our failure can't thwart God's promises. But prayer and faithfulness to God's promises will sure make paddling easier. It will sure make the trip a lot less bumpy. And that's true for us personally. I'd encourage you to ask the question, are you fighting against God's will for your life? Are you dwelling on a past failure, thinking that somehow that's taken you out of game, or are you praying for future faithfulness? Are you owning up to the fact that that failure took place, but saying, God, what would you have me do today? Are you fixated on your sin, or are you praying for victory over it? Are you passive due to your own weakness, or are you praying that God would exemplify his strength in your weakness? That he would show how faithful he is despite the fact that you failed? And the same is true for us corporately. As a church, we can get so consumed with our shortfallings. We can get so consumed with the things we're not doing well, with the things other churches are doing well, that we completely lose sight of the fact that God's power through prayer is how it gets done anyway. It's not because of our greatness. It's not because we have it all together. It's not because we make all the right decisions. And yet God chooses to work anyway to glorify himself. This is the reason for our renewed emphasis on prayer as a church. As the elders, one of the reasons we want to recommit ourselves to prayer in this year and into the future is because we genuinely believe that prayer is what gets the job done. We can do any number of wonderful programs and activities without prayer, it's not going to do anything. And we can pray and mess up all of our programs and activities and God still gets the job done. And that's where you might expect the story to end here in Joshua 10. And to some degree, it formally does. Look at verse 15. Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But here, later in the chapter, Joshua adds what I would call an editorial note, or a bit of an epilogue to this story. And he camps out on the results of Israel's victory here. And I want to just note this briefly. As we see in verses 16 through 28, perfect plans finally seen. Here we see two significant actions taken on the part of the Israelites, and two effects that God divinely ordains to bring about. First event is the kings are captured and the army is defeated. Look at verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings had been found and hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves, pursue the enemies. 
Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow, until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained in them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. It's fascinating here that where these arrogant kings who were sure of their victory over God's people sought refuge in this battle, that place became their prison. Where they sought to get away from this attack, it ends up being their prison where they must await their sentencing. And the Israelites, by God's power, mop up the enemies. But it's worth noting here that these cities are not yet destroyed. Some people read this and they think there's a contradiction in Scripture. They destroy their armies, but they haven't taken out their cities yet. We'll read about their cities being destroyed here later. But I want to focus in on the effect of this. The effect of this is shown at the end of verse 21. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. See that? God's enemies are silenced. This great coalition army that thought for sure they were going to take Gibeon out and take the Israelites out with them are silenced in a day. It's fascinating to me that God works through Israel's failure to silence his enemies. God even uses Israel's failure in this moment to bring the enemies of Israel to silence. Not a man moved his tongue against the people of Israel. Even though Israel had messed up because of God's faithfulness. But the action continues in the story, and we see a second event that I think is worth noting. In verses 22 through 27, the kings are killed, and another monument is built. Look at this. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, and the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, and when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And that's a sign of victory, a sign of conquest. Verse 25, And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Again, just like it was ironic that the arrogant kings seek refuge in the cave, and that becomes their prison, here, these rebellious kings seek escape from God, and that becomes their tomb. That becomes the place where their judgment is meted out and where they lie. And if you're interested in some interesting reading here this afternoon, it's interesting that they are hung and they are thrown into this tomb before, before the night in accordance with Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. It's actually part of the law that those who were guilty of a death sentence and were hung this way would be executed in this manner. If you want to read it this afternoon, it's fascinating. But then we see another pile of stones is erected. Do you see that there at the end of the verse? They set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. This is monument number five in the book of Joshua, if you haven't been paying attention. Two monuments for the Jordan, two monuments at Ai, and now this monument commemorating God's victory over these kings. And it says it remains to this very day. Why? To inspire obedience in God's people. The effect of this 
is Joshua brings them out, and look at verse 25, it says this, And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So as they capture and imprison these kings, God uses it to silence his enemies, and then as they put them to death, God uses the failure of the Israelites to bring courage to his people. And thus the story concludes with verse 28. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it, and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And this act, or this epilogue, this additional note here at the end of the story, I think functions to remind us that God uses even our failures to accomplish his plans. And I expect that's true in your life as well. Can you think of a time in your life where God has used the way you've messed up to bring him glory? It was a moment where your testimony, your explanation of what you were living like before Christ and how Christ redeemed you out of that leads to someone else coming to Christ. Here in a moment, we're going to have five young people explain in their baptism their personal testimony. They're going to articulate that they didn't achieve righteousness by themselves. They achieved righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Before Christ came, they were failing miserably. And God uses those things to bring other people to a saving knowledge of him. Maybe it's a battle that you have had with sin that inspires someone else to obedience. As you share that testimony with you and you say, avoid that because that's a painful reality. Maybe it's some weakness of yours that displays God's strength. That was true of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, where he said, I can boast in my weakness because that just glorifies God more. Now, I want to make a quick note here that while we accept that God uses our failures to accomplish his plans and purposes, that is no excuse for lingering in sin. That is not the point he's trying to make here. He's not advocating that they should have made this alliance with Gibeon. He is simply saying that just like Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph looks at his brothers who are seeking his forgiveness and he says, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. There's no excuse for lingering in sin. That's not what he's saying. And yet, while we strive for obedience, we acknowledge that God is sovereign even in our failures. That's a great comfort to me. I don't know about you. Because I become so convinced that when I mess up, I'm going to derail God's plan. God's plan for my family, God's plan for the church, God's plan for my life. And in that respect, it's just doing really bad math. We know math, right? All of us learn in like second grade or maybe earlier than that, that if you take zero times any number, what's the result? Okay, that was either really bad mathematicians out here or you weren't sure if you were supposed to respond. Zero times any number is what? Good, I'm very glad. This is good. You'll understand this illustration better if you understand that math. And we do this math in our head and we look at the equation of life and we say, I have failed miserably. I'm like a zero in the equation and God may throw in a little bit of his help, but anything of God's help times zero is just going to result in failure anyway, right? And we use that as an excuse to give up, to seek being, or to quit being faithful to what God is calling us to, to think that somehow we're out of the game and God can't use us for his purposes. That's just an example of really bad math. Because the point is, in the gospel, we do bring nothing. 
But it's not because of what we bring that we're saved, is it not? It's just like our salvation. It's the fact that we bring nothing to the table that glorifies God and brings us to a point of salvation. It isn't because we bring so much. It isn't because we're worthy. And our sanctification, our life for Christ is just the same. It's not because we're so great. It's not because we're so awesome. It's not because we do so much that God chooses to use us. He uses us because we're the weakest. Because we're the foolish. Because we aren't the ones that have it all together. Because we aren't the ones that do everything right. And he does it to glorify himself. And so while our failures come with consequences, they can't thwart God's promises. He even uses them to accomplish his plans, ultimately. This should be an incredible encouragement to us. To most of us that are tempted to check out because we're sure we failed so badly God can't use us. Or we're tempted to not be faithful to God because we don't have the experience or we don't have the expertise or we don't have the knowledge. But the point of the matter is, your failures can't frustrate God's purposes. And though you might think otherwise, you're just not that powerful. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this story in the book of Joshua, for the reminder that you do incredible things, sometimes through us and sometimes in spite of us. But either way, you do it to exemplify your love and to glorify yourself. We praise you for that. We ask that those of us that are here today would embrace that reality. Father, as we head into a time of baptism, as we commemorate what you've done in the lives of some young people in our church, we ask that this would be an encouragement, that you would use this to stamp and mark this moment in their life and remind them of future faithfulness. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.